message this morning is entitled Frustration and Faith. Frustration and Faith. We're talking about expectations, unrealized expectations, which produce frustration. And they are disappointments. Disappointments arise when expectations are not realized. Everyone has disappointments. Because life is uncertain. We don't know what tomorrow holds. When unrealized expectations mount up, discouragement ensues. Discouragement then may lead to tragic consequences. For example, Christians may find themselves uh, questioning their own faith, abandoning their faith because of those unrealized expectations. I think the ministry itself is particularly pr- uh, prone and susceptible here to discouragement. I know I have experienced much of it myself, many pastors. I have felt the call to uh, move to another church after two or three years in one place because of the problems that they were facing in that, only to travel to the new place and find the same kinds of problems facing and then questioning whether God had really called them there and wondering if they should be finding another place of service. And so many pastors have floated from one church to another. I had mentioned this before, but when I came to Lamar, uh, I was convinced of the Lord that the pastoral office was a lifetime thing. We, we sought to do that. But that has not meant that there are not uh, disappointments. And because of unrealized expectations. Some have actually deserted the ministry altogether. I don't know how many times I've said, I'm done. <laughs> Only to have the Lord tap me on the shoulder and say, no, you're not. <laughs> you're not done. But this danger can be avoided. By one simple truth, walk by faith and not by sight. That's what Paul testified there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, when he said, walk by faith and not by sight. And then he re- re- said, we, yes, we are of good courage. What did he mean? He meant that uh, the ministry is hard. And sometimes you wonder, are we, are we getting anywhere? He said to the Galatian church, Have I labored here in vain? Have I wasted my time with you? But he said, We walk by faith and not by sight, and therefore we are of good courage. Faith is a gift of God. Faith is the gift of God. And it comes through hearing the Word of God. Faith is not something magical dust that God sprinkles on Christians and say, here, have some faith. Faith is not uh, just blind insistence on a certain course of action in spite of everything that tells you otherwise. So I'm going to walk by faith. And God's going to take me through this thing. That's true if it is informed by truth faith must be informed by truth to be genuine faith so we read there in in romans chapter 10 verse 17 
Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Paul was dealing with some very disheartened and discouraged people there in, in the book of Hebrews. They were ready to quit Christianity and go back to Judaism. Paul's answer to them was you can't do that because the old covenant is over and you, li you now live under a new covenant. And yes, you are going to be persecuted. You are going to suffer. You are going to have trials. And you guys were doing real well in the beginning. What has caused you to fall away? And so he gives them this definition of faith there in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And then he goes to list a number of old covenant heroes who walked by faith and not by sight. And then at, toward the end he lists several and says these are they who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign enemies to flight. Yeah, that's what I want for my Christian life. But wait a minute. Then he turns and says, there are others, however, who, uh, though commended for their faith, were suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment, were stoned, sawn in two, some were killed with a sword, some went about in skins of sheep and goats, couldn't afford clothes, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. These guys were not what you would call victorious. But they walked by faith and not by sight because God says he commended them for their faith. That's why then we are really exhorted not to be frustrated by such adversity. And the expectation of suffering and persecution does not fit into the, our modern scenario of Christianity. We've been told by lots of preachers that if you just trust God and walk by faith, you can drive Cadillacs, own big homes, have a, have a fabulous salaries, and just, be, and just really enjoy the world. And God will fix every little problem that you have. That prosperity gospel is a false gospel. Satan does that. He loves to ingratiate his followers and make them rich and prosperous, but the end of it is not so good. We are rather, according to Hebrews chapter 12, be like these other, you know, be to, to understand to walk by faith, and so he, uh, he encourages these Christians who are ready to fall away there in the 12th chapter. Uh, therefore, 
and that's verses 12 and 13 he says therefore lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather let it be healed they, these are discouraged people he said buck up buck up See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. You mean we can fail to obtain the grace of God? Yes. When we don't walk by faith, but we walk by sight. And, and he lists three things here that, that failing to obtain the grace of God, the consequences of that are these three things. Number one, some have developed a root of bitterness. And not only hurt themselves, but cause trouble to others as well. I wonder how many churches have been hurt by people with a root of bitterness. Then he warned against falling into immorality. And I believe immorality here is a little broader term than just sexual. It is a, immorality is a wider thing that, that says... I'm going to live for my flesh. I'm going to live for what feels good to me. It's hard to live for Jesus Christ, so I'm going to, I'm going to make myself comfortable in life. And then the third thing he warned against is a living a profane lifestyle. He calls it unholy. Uh, the idea there, I, he's, and he's speaking to Hebrew Christians who understood the idea of holiness and unholiness uh, in light of things that are clean and things that are unclean. Things that are, are set apart to God, there's, those things are holy, and the things that are common or ordinary are the unclean things. And so the scriptures warn us that we should refer to regard everything as holy and everything as belonging to God. But he uses Esau here to illustrate this. Who had great spiritual privilege in his birthright. He is the son of Jacob. The son of Isaac. The son of Abraham. With a great spiritual heritage and great spiritual promises and they're tied up to his birthright Jacob wanted it for himself that's why he's called the heel grabber he, he tried to pull Esau back into the womb so he could be born first to get that privilege but Esau sold that spiritual privilege for a bowl of chili to satisfy a temporary desire. So that what's how does that relate here to our text today? We find here the disciples. And he's telling them all these things. And he tells them very specifically, as I've already pointed out from the text, I'm telling you these things so that you will not fall away. Why? They had expectations. What were their expectations? Well, 
all you got to do is go over there to the book of Luke. Because after the resurrection, before Jesus had appeared to his disciples, we find a couple of them on their way to Emmaus, and they're downtrodden and dejected and very sad, and Jesus pulls up alongside them, and they do not recognize that it's Jesus, and he asks them, why are you, why are you guys so sad? He said, boy, you must be a stranger around these parts, and you don't know anything. You know, Jesus had previously told these disciples that they were men of little faith. I was, I was interested how many times Jesus said that to them. Oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of little faith. For example, Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 14, verse 31. And after in, in telling them what they should expect in John chapter 16, and uh, actually 13 through 16, and then praying for them specifically on these matters in John chapter 17. He went to the cross in three days, and in three days these guys are on their way to Emmaus. And he asked them, what, what's wrong with you? And they shared their expectation that was unfulfilled. They're sad and they're dejected because they had an expectation. And they, they stated it. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. <laughs> what? And what did Jesus, how did Jesus answer them? Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You guys haven't been reading your Bibles. You don't know the Scriptures. And you're not walking by faith. You're walking by sight. Their lives were, had been turned upside down. And uncertainties of their future and of their safety just overcame them. And thus Jesus informed them of the suffering that they should expect because of their relationship to him. But they weren't listening then either. Isn't that amazing? And we don't either. Don't be quick to judge them because we don't either. So Jesus said, I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. Modern believers face hard, the hardships Jesus announced. These hardships are the consequences of living a godly life in an ungodly and God-hating world. And two important truths have to be understood for believers to walk by faith in these dangerous and uncertain times. They need to faithfully live out the will of God. So the first one is believers must understand that although they are citizens of the kingdom of God, Right now, they are exiles in a hostile land until they are called safely home. We're foreigners. We're just like the children of Israel that were carried away into the captivity of Babylon. God told them, there, build houses, get married, plant vineyards, 
and, and live and pray for the welfare of the cities you're in. That's our, that's our task right now. But we're strangers and aliens. Which Peter made very clear there. We're strangers and aliens. And then secondly, God does not promise a prosperous and an easy life in this exile. He didn't tell us it would be easy. He just said, I'll be with you. I'll neither I'll not leave you nor forsake you. I'm giving you my Holy Spirit. You have my word and you have and my truth that the Spirit will teach you so that He will enable you through this. We don't want to get satisfied here. We don't get happy here, then we'd miss it too much. <laughs> Ah, we can't even imagine what the glory will be over there. Well, let me just talk about that for a second then. Is this living, for a little more than a second, living the, king, living the kingdom of God in the kingdom of darkness. That's what we're called to do. We're called to live the kingdom of God in the kingdom of darkness. Believers are in the world, but they are not of the world. John 15, verse 19. As noted last week, Jesus was planning to leave the world to return to the Father, and so he prayed for the disciples there in John 17, 14 to 17. I have given them your word, so they can walk by faith. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He is faithful to, to keep his word. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So sanctify them, to make them holy. In your truth, your word is truth. Peter wrote to the saints in Cappadocia, uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. They're in 1 Peter. And he refers to them in verse 1 there of First Peter as exiles of the dispersion. He's not writing to Jews. He's writing to Christian churches. And he calls them elect exiles of the dispersion. God's exiles then are not to live like the citizens of the country in which they live. They're to be different. Rather, they are to live holy lives, having been called out of darkness into his marvelous light, according to 1 Peter 2, verse 9. Jesus left his own in the world to be salt and light, Matthew 5, 13 and 14. And as a consequence, they will suffer unjustly as objects of hatred because they are, quoting Peter again here, a holy nation and a people for his own possession. Thus Peter addresses the issue of unjust suffering at the hands of those who hate God and his people in 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 1 and 2. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Why does God allow us to go through trouble? 
it keeps us out of trouble. <laughs> Think about that. The hardships we face prevent us from getting comfortable and falling into deeper problems. So they're no longer in the flesh. To, but so they should then live out the rest of their lives in the flesh, not to human passions, but for the will of God. So then Peter exhorts his readers in chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's so scripture is filled with examples that should encourage our hearts of servants of God who were in exile, but used of God in exile, and some of them in very difficult straits, to accomplish his will. Here's David, for example, fleeing from Saul, hiding out, after knowing that God's will for him was to be the king of Israel. But he is suffering at this time and fleeing from, from uh, Saul. What does he do? We read there that David, in dwelling in the land of the Philistines, did more to obey the directive of God to Israel to drive out the inhabitants of the land and to possess the land than anybody since Joshua. You probably didn't think about that either, but that's exactly what the scripture says. As he lived among the Philistines, he and his men made regular raids against the ancient inhabitants of Canaan, the, Gersh, the Gershonites, the Gerizites, uh, and the Amalekites. Remember, God gave, gave a directive to Saul to, to wipe out the Amalekites, and he disobeyed God. So here's David fulfilling that responsibility. And so David and his men would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath. You said, that's awful. But that's what God told them to do. We don't understand a lot of things about the, these ancient peoples. And we better not be quick to judge God for wanting them completely destroyed. But that's what happened. But they did it so that nobody would bring news back to Gath. So when the Philistine king there said, asked David, where have you been today? Oh, I've been raiding up in this place and that place. And, and he thought, hey, he, he's, he is uh, making his wrath known upon Israel when that wasn't the case at all. So Samuel tells us, 1 Samuel chapter 27, verse 11, such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. Listen to that. He's suffering persecution fleeing from the wrath of Saul, and in the meantime, he's fulfilling the will of God in driving out the inhabitants of the land. Here's Daniel. This young man, 
taken away into the captivity at, during the time of Jeremiah. And when he got there, I mean, saw all the grandeur and the glory of that kingdom, he resolved that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat or with the wine that he drank. What was Daniel doing? Daniel said, I'm going to be faithful to God. Here's a, here's a teenager driven out of the land of Israel. He could be mad at God just like many of his fellow Israelites, Jews. God, why did you do this to us? No, Daniel said, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to be faithful in this foreign land. I'm going to trust God in this foreign land. And I will live for God in this foreign land. And as a result, the scripture says that God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the result, the resolve then and, and the obedience of Daniel was rewarded by God. And God used Daniel there in a, in a, in a wonderful way. He gave him favor with the king of Babylon. So we read there in Daniel 1, 19-21, they stood before the king in every matter of wisdom, understanding about which the king inquired of them. He found them ten times better than the, all the magicians and the enchanters that were in all the kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus, the king of Persia. See, God used Daniel greatly. Gave him wonderful information about the future. But that's not always the case. And I'll give you one more quick example. That's Esther. Esther found herself in real danger. Here, here's a woman who got elevated. She's the, she's the queen of the Persian Empire. But she, what, she, what has she done? She's hidden the fact that she's a Jew. Till Uncle Mordecai comes and says, Haman has gotten the king to sign a, de a decree to wipe out the Jews that are in the kingdom. And you're one. And the law of the Medes and the Persians cannot be broken. He said, you go in, into the king and appeal. She said, I can't do that. I, nobody can go to, into the king unless the king invites them there. If, he, if I were to go and push myself into the throne room, I'd be put to death. Mordecai said, haven't you thought about this fact that it may be for this very hour he has brought you into the kingdom? Do the will of God. She said, I, I will. And she concludes, if I perish, I perish. She's resigned. I will do the will of God. And if I perish, I perish. So following in then this train of these godly saints, Jesus called his followers to live uncompromising, holy, and obedient lives in an ungodly age, just like us. They, like Daniel, are to be constant reminders of all to all there that Jesus is Lord and that as Daniel has said there in chapter 7 verse 14 God has given him a kingdom a dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people should serve him 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom shall never pass away. So believers here are to live for Christ, having the Holy Spirit upon them to bear witness about him, according to John 15, 25, or 27, excuse me. Jesus reminded his own in the world that they would have tribulation, but take heart, he said, I have overcome the world. John 16 and verse 33. So John picks that up in 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, when he says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, because Jesus did. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. What? Our faith. Our in scripture informed spirit guided faith which is a gift from God overcomes the world who is he that overcomes the world except the one that believes that Jesus is the son of God oh we believe that he would be the one that should redeem Israel ah oh, but he is but not in the way that you suppose their expectations were unrealized and they were sad and discouraged. The, the prophet Jeremiah is the same way. The prophet Jeremiah. The frustration of the prophet Jeremiah. Let me just share this. The prophet Jeremiah had expectations. And the background of his frustration is found in the first verses of chapter 20. We have here Pashur, who was a priest. Apparently a leader I don't, he's not the high priest, but he is apparently a chief leader among the priests. Pasher, it's an interesting name. His uh, name derives, is likely derives from the Hebrew word pashur, which uh, means to pull in pieces. <laughs> Instead of building up the people of God, he's pulling them in pieces. And this man would not received Jeremiah's truth. When Jeremiah preached what God was telling them about the captivity, he rejected it. He was listening to the false prophets who were telling everybody that God has promised you this land. He gave it to Abraham. He put you in it. You are secure. No enemy is going to be able to take you out of it. So they believed that truth. It is a truth, but they... but. But they forgot one thing about it, and that was God had an if. If you remain faithful to me and keep my law and don't follow the abominations of the nations that are around you. But they said, oh God, we're God's people. We're God's chosen people. We're going to be good. We're going to be good. And they would not listen to God. And the false prophets were telling them, hey, everything's okay. Believe, the, you know, believe, believe us. And Jeremiah was coming in saying, hey, guys, God says repent or else. So Pasher had him beaten. And uh, then bound in stocks in the Benjamin gate there near the temple. And as a consequence, God gave the prophet a message for Pasher, the priest. He gave him a new name. I won't 
repeat the Hebrew name, but the name is translated terror on every side. You're the one who pulls things to pieces. But I want to tell you something. You're going to be now the one that's going to evoke terror on every side. And that would be due to their their disobedience and their refusal to heed the message unless they repented. And God was about to send them into the captivity of Babylon. It's interesting that this is the first mention of Babylon in Jeremiah. Pasture, uh, terror on every side. Now at this point in the narrative, Jeremiah had expectations. Now I want to talk about that here for a second. What were Jeremiah's expectations? Because he utters now this psalm of of lament. I'm going to read it here for you, here just for a moment. In Jeremiah chapter 20, and beginning with verse number 7. O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughing stock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout, violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. And if I say I will not make, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. For I hear many whispering terror on every side. Denounce him! Denounce! Let us denounce him! They say, oh, my close friends, my close friends, watching for my fall. Perhaps he will be deceived and we can overcome him and take our revenge on him. That's kind of sad. That's a lament. Probably formed those words while he's in those stocks there in that Benjamin gate. So what were Jeremiah's expectations? That's the question. The translation of the word here deceived I think is a bit strong. Was Jeremiah actually accusing God of lying to him? You deceived me? Lord, you have deceived me. You lied to me. John Calvin, in his commentary, argues that Jeremiah was actually using sarcasm in the light of the false prophets, declaring that God was not really going to take them into captivity, that he would keep them in the land. So Jeremiah was saying kind of sarcastically, okay, God deceived me, and I was deceived. I guess my message hasn't been right. Well, I don't think that that's the case. And this explanation, however, doesn't consider the whole context of the lament. So, why why did uh, the translators use the term here, deceived? And I, because it's a strong word. It's in, it's interesting. There are several words in the Hebrew language for deceive, but they all essentially have the same meaning basic meaning and that is to persuade 
to allure and to convince as well as deceive. Deceive is sort of a neg- is the negative aspect of it. Was Jeremiah accusing God of deceiving him? I don't think so. I'd, I'd rather have that I think of the term in light of Hosea chapter 2 verse 14 which says here, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. It's the same word, allure. It's a form of persuasion. And I think that Jeremiah was saying here, God had persuaded the prophet to preach his word to the nation as recorded in chapter 1. He was reticent to do so. He didn't want to. He's a young man. And in Hebrew culture, uh, you didn't have any authority with people until you were in your 50s, 40s, late, you know, your 40s and 50s. Jeremiah's a young man. He said, they're not going to listen to me. And God said, no, I'm going to put my words in your mouth. I'm going to put my words in your mouth. So he was reticent to do so, but God prevailed. That's what he says here in the lament. So Jeremiah confessed, you are stronger than I and you have prevailed. Jeremiah obeyed God because God said what he would, what he would do and, and faithfully proclaimed his message. And the result of it was he was made a laughing stock and a derision to even his friends, his close friends. Remember, Jeremiah is a human being. He is a human being. His expectations were shattered. And here's here's where I think his expectations came from. Remember in the first chapter, in chapter in verses nine and ten, there the God said to the prophet, I said, the Lord said to me. Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over the nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. I've set you over the nations. Whoa. Now this might be speculative because the scriptures does not confirm this opinion here. But the experience of many years has shown that when God calls someone into his service, they expect some degree of success. Some even presume, and I have had that same presumption in my own life, that I'd be preaching to large crowds and build a great church. Whatever Jeremiah expected in his call, he was rudely awakened by the hatred and rejection of even his close friends. It's not that God had not clearly warned him. See, apparently he wasn't listening either sometimes. Because we we read there in chapter 1, verse 16, that God was about to judge Judah for, for the evil of forsaking him. They were a stubborn people who would not listen. And thus he would be sin, sending his enemies against them from the north. And giving them into, the, into their hands. Nevertheless. 
Jeremiah was assured of Yahweh's support. And for the Lord had instructed him in, in chapter 1, verses 17 and 19. But you dress yourself for work. Listen to this. Arise and say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them. Lest I dismay you before them. And I, behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. Reminds me of what Paul said there to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. Be watchful, stand firm, act like men. Or I, I like the King James, quit you like men. Be strong. Why? It's not going to be easy. And it's too, men are too tempted to compromise the truth. When things kind of go south. Secondly, Jeremiah quickly realized his predicament. And because that's where the word of God, he said, God said, I'm going to put my word in your mouth. This is where the word of God comes in. The word of God was very precious to Jeremiah. So he says there in verse 9, if I say I will not mention him or speak anymore in his name, <laughs> Jeremiah said, I quit. I'm not, I'm giving it up. I don't like what's happening to me. I love this. There was in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. A true, a, a true servant of God may say, I, I quit. <laughs> but then he said, I can't. I can't quit. If you walk by faith and not by sight, I can't quit. The word of God was doing its powerful work in Jeremiah and he was compelled to preach the word even in when it meant opposition. For I hear many whispering, terror on every side. Denounce him, denounce, let us denounce him, say my close friends watching for my fall. Perhaps he will be deceived. He can be persuaded to quit. See, here again, I think the word deceive should be persuaded. Perhaps our resistance of him will persuade him to shut his mouth and go along with us. We can, then we can overcome him and take our revenge on him. We don't like what he has to say. But, you know, isn't it interesting that... Here again, even the king later, Zedekiah, says, uh, bring me Jeremiah. He tells me the truth. <laughs> Reminds me of old Ahab. When uh, Jeroboam was with him, he said, uh, uh, I mean, Jehoshaphat was with him. And they were going to have a mutual campaign, go out here and take the city out of the hands of the uh, of the Syrians. 
And all of the false prophets were saying, Go get them! you got God on your side! You're going to be victorious! And the king, King Ahab said, or King Jehoshaphat said, Is there a true prophet around here that we could get? <laughs> said, Yeah, it's so and so. I don't like him because he tells me the truth. <laughs> yeah, well, bring him in. And he came in and, and he was telling them the, the lie that all the other prophets were. And Ahab said, How many times have I told you to tell me the truth? <laughs> they understood. That, the, that these false prophets were false. Ah, it is amazing. So, finally here in this thing, we have Jeremiah remembering to walk by faith, even when he does not see it. But the, word, the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly ashamed, for they will not succeed. Their e eternal dishonor will never be forgiven. O Lord of hosts, who tests the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for you have for to you I have committed my cause. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord. For he has delivered the life of the needy from the hand of the evildoer. Jeremiah had made the Lord his cause. So in the conclusion, yes, Jeremiah became frustrated with his condition even and even lamented the day of his birth. You see that in verses 14 through the end there, chapter uh, of the chapter, verse 18. I'm not, I won't read that. But he trusted the Lord even in his dark hour. And, and so here's what's recorded. I have become a laughing stock to all the people. This is Jeremiah, this is Jeremiah in Lamentations. One of my favorite passages in the Word of God. And it's the bat and basis of the of the song that's my, one of my favorites. Great is thy faithfulness. Listen to this. Lamentations chapter 3, 19 to 25. I have become a laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He, God, has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in the ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope, my expectation from the Lord. What he, I don't know what Jeremiah's expectation was. Perhaps he thought he was going to turn people's hearts back to God. And it didn't happen. And his expectation is dashed. So he pleads, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind. Faith is restored. His faith is restored. 
And therefore, he says, I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him and the soul who seeks him. The disciples and all who follow Christ must learn to walk as Jeremiah walked by faith in their exile. Even when it's full of disappointment. And they must learn to put their expectations away and trust God. Even when they do not understand. Finally, and most importantly, they must make the Lord and Him alone their portion. Sadly, I fear too many preachers have made success their portion, not the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this truth that we find in Your Word. Lord, we want to make you our portion. We are exiles. We're looking forward to a new and a better day when the former things shall be forgotten and there will be no more disappointments, no more sighing, no more tears, no more crying, no more sickness, no more sin. But we will see your face, you who are our portion. Oh, that that day may come sooner than later. But in the meantime, Lord, keep us looking to Thee, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the, of the majesty. Lord, we just ask for grace to walk by faith and not by sight. And we'll praise you in Jesus' name.